I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. We're going to pick up reading at verse 29. And then if you put a finger there and flip over to 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 there. So Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35, and then 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11. Before we read it, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are bombarded all week with messages, with newspaper articles, with blogs and with posts and texts and emails. And we read a ton. There's a lot before us. And yet when we come to your word, it's easy uh, for us to then look at it as some sort of ordinary thing, but we know it's not. We come to your word, it's authoritative for our lives. It is uh, necessary for our salvation and our spiritual growth. It reveals you and it reveals who we are, the way to you and what we're called to do while we yet have life. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts and our minds the significance of what it is we're about to read and that as we meditate on it and think about it, that you would uh, give each of us what we need spiritually because you know what that is better than we do ourselves. And so we're looking to you for help and for grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 34, at verse 29, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Second Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here tonight, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets. This is covenant ceremony round two. First time he came down, he broke them when he saw what was going on with the golden calf. The covenant is being renewed, and he is coming down the mountain. What is interesting about Moses coming down the mountain this time is something he is unaware of as he's coming down. Now, he's asked to see God's glory. God put him in the cleft of the rock, passed by him, and declared who he is as Lord. And this did something to Moses' face. 
It caused Moses' face to shine and glow brightly. Now, the language has to do with to, to send out rays, which some have actually translated to have horns, so that sometimes Moses has been depicted with horns if you go off older translations. But the language just sent out rays, so that his face actually kind of shone like the sun. It was just like a, a thousand flashlights inside of his skin shooting out uh, light, as it were. That's how we came down the mountain. This was a facial like no facial has ever been done before. And verse 30, we're told Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and they were afraid to come near him. The people were exposed to a small reflection of God's glory produced by a partial glimpse of God. And they were afraid to come near Moses because of it. This tells us something. And we're going to sit on this for a little while now. Before we get into the outline, Philip Graham Riken had an outline in his sermon on Exodus. I thought it was just really good. So I'm borrowing three of his four points here. And the first thing I want us to notice is the glory of God. Secondly, the glory of God's mediator. And then thirdly, the glory of God's gospel or the glory of the ministry of the spirit and the new covenant. So the glory of God, the glory of God's mediator and the glory of the gospel. First of all, the glory of God. Verse 29, Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I trust it's fairly straightforward for us that the reason Moses' face shone is very explicit in the text is because Moses met with God. <laughs> we know Moses wasn't the one who had all the glory and like somehow Moses caused God to shine. Uh-uh. It was God who had the glory. And Moses meeting with God, catching the backside of his glory for but a brief moment, having the covenant renewed and being declared to him, caused Moses' face to light up. And Paul can say in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen, or can see that language of unapproachable light is indeed God in all of his glory. And Moses caught a glimpse of that. Being with God has this effect. God is glorious. Being in his presence is glorious. And whenever someone comes into the presence of God and sees even a small glimpse of who God is and his glory, they never leave the same. They always leave changed. Even the apostles experienced this. In Acts 4.13, when the rulers and elders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, their faces weren't shining, but their lives were changed, right? When you meet with God, things change. And Moses met with God in all of his glory and his face shone. Now, we're not told that Moses was excited or happy clappy, but we are told something much more. Regardless of what Moses thought about it, we're told that his skin shown that there was something of God's resplendent glory, which was reflected in the very face of Moses, his skin lit up. That's what took place in the life of Moses when he met with God. Now, I don't have to tell you what's obvious. That's some incredible glory. It's like if you've been exposed to the sun, we get sunburned. If you stand in front of a fire, we can get burned. If you go into the presence of God and see even a small glimpse of his glory, your face lights up. That's what took place to Moses uh, in Moses' life because God's glorious. Now, the second thing I want to look at is the glory of God's mediator. Now, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So the second glorious thing I want to highlight here is the glory of God's mediator, Moses. Moses was the only one who was able to meet face to face with the Lord and live. And when Moses met with the Lord, his face shone. Now Moses is an ordinary person like you and I. He's a saved sinner, yet he has a very unique role. He's cast in the role of mediator, which we noticed, uh, which we've been noticing in Exodus. That Moses is pleading for God's people. He's acting as a mediator. He's very bold in his requests. And he has the privilege of seeing God face to face and being able to experience the glory of being a mediator between God and his people. So Moses was able to talk with God face to face in the tent of meeting, Exodus 33, 7 to 11. No one else had the privilege of meeting with God face to face. In fact, no one else could meet with God this way and live to tell it. But that's one uh, highlight about the glory of the mediator. The second thing I want to highlight is his glory was so resplendent that the Israelites were afraid to go near him. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Moses was almost more than human. He was both one of them and yet so much more. He was an ordinary Israelite. Everybody knew that he was a sinful man who was saved by God's grace, but there was more to him than that because he was a mediator and he was allowed to see God in a way that they weren't. The third thing about Moses is the Lord spoke to the Israelites through Moses. Verse 32, afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And then when he was done, he put the veil over his face. The fourth thing is that Moses' face shone so brightly that he had to put a veil over his face in order to shield the Israelites from God's reflected glory. And every time he went into the tent of meeting to meet with God, he'd pull the veil up. When he left, he would go out and deliver what God had commanded him and put the veil back over his face. Now, Moses is a grand picture of the greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, the true mediator between God and man. Let me compare the two just briefly. Moses had the privilege of meeting God face to face, but Jesus Christ has enjoyed sweet inter-Trinitarian communion with God from all eternity, dwelling in the bosom of the Father. And Jesus doesn't just get to see God's face. Jesus is God, the very face of God himself. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God. So Moses is but a small picture of Jesus. When Moses' face shone a bit of the glory of God, we're getting a little bit of a glimpse. When Jesus comes, we got the full-blown sun showing up. And Jesus can say, not, I shine a little brightly, but I'm the light of the world. He's that bright. The second comparison between Moses and Jesus, the shining face of Moses was so glorious that the people were afraid to draw near. He was one of them, yet so much more. And when Jesus came, everybody could tell that there was something different about him. He was one of them. He looked them in the eye. He stood about shoulder to shoulder with the average person. He looked people eyeball to eyeball. He was one of them, but they could tell by his teaching. He doesn't teach like the scribes do. He teaches as one who has authority. He didn't go to our seminaries and our rabbinical schools. He just has this teaching just right there on the tip of his tongue all the time. And his miracles, we've never seen anybody do something like this before. And so Jesus was one of them, yet he was very different than them. 
But what was interesting about Jesus, which makes him a better mediator than Moses, is the people were scared when Moses came down and shone. But what was characteristic of the life and ministry of Jesus? Tax collectors and sinners were not scared of him. They were drawn to him. People walked away from Moses when he radiated the light of God's holiness in the law. When Jesus came, people were drawn to him. This is a mediator people are running to and looking to. Moses was used by God, thirdly, as a prophet to speak to the people all the things revealed to him. He was the mouthpiece of God. He told the people everything that God had commanded them. And when Jesus came, Jesus was a prophet too. He taught the people throughout his earthly ministry. You can think the Sermon on the Mount, but all of his teachings. Wherever Jesus went, he taught the people. He had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them uh, the right way. But Jesus was more than Moses. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we get a picture of that. Uh, Matthew 17, 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In order to get the Israelites to listen to Moses, God made his face shine. In order to get the disciples, the apostles, and everybody else after to listen to Jesus, God transfigures his son, making him shine brightly in all purity and holiness. Parts the heavens and says, just in case anybody's wondering, this is the son I love. Listen to him. He is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy. Not a prophet, but the prophet of prophets. And when the disciples heard this, Matthew 17, 6, they fell on their faces and they were terrified, which is a similar reaction to the Israelites to Moses. But catch the difference again. Matthew 17, 7, Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. So again, the people were afraid of Moses. But when Jesus is denoted and portrayed as the prophet, the disciples hit the dust and he says, no, get up. We're not, you're not going to be afraid. Indeed, I've come to reveal the law and talk about God's commands, but I've also come to fulfill them. He's a, he's a greater mediator than Moses. And one more comparison between Moses and Jesus. Moses' face shone so brightly that he had to cover his face for the sake of the people. The law of God, which had been revealed, was glorious, and the covenant God made through Moses was a glorious covenant, but it was cutting in that it demanded perfect obedience it was glorious in a difficult way, a way that was too holy for the Israelites. They were not able to enjoy and drink of the glory of that covenant because God was too holy for them. But when Jesus came down, God's glory was revealed in a way people could actually drink deeply of and enjoy. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given and it was too much unmediated glory for the people to handle. So even the mediator had to cover his face. But grace and truth came through Jesus and people were able to approach Jesus. Again, Jesus is the great uh, Moses. He's a greater mediator than Moses. And now I want to land here and spend the rest of our time here. The glory of God, the glory of God's mediator, and then finally the glory of God's gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, 
Paul talks about the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant, as opposed to the ministry of the letter, the ministry of the law. And we read sort of the pithiest section in there, and I want to spend time uh, looking at what he writes. And I want to begin this way by unfolding the glories of the new covenant to comparison with the old. Uh, if you've ever been to a high school track meet, you really, they're probably, you know, they're fun to watch. There's always a few stars which shine pretty brightly. Some folks which will run a 400 meter dash and finish five seconds of everybody else. And people run the miles and finish a minute ahead of everybody else. And some throwers that will chuck the ball, you know, 10 feet farther than everyone else. And people who will jump out of the stadium, right? And those are the people who end up going to college and they'll go do track there. And when you get to college, it's interesting to watch college track and field athletes because it's usually the best of the best from high school. Everybody who wasn't top notch wouldn't have qualified to compete in division one track and field. And then you go to the national meet and it's the best of the best from every college. So the best high school athletes go to college, the best of the best go to the nationals and you have an incredible meet. But even there, there's always people who stand out. And those standouts are usually the people who go professional and they go on the U.S. men's and women's track and field team. And they'll go to the nationals, they'll do the, the worlds, or they'll do the Olympics every four years. And so those are the best of the best of the college folks. And when you go there, it is very incredible. And it's, uh, it's kind of like the NFL. You don't know how good the players are because there's nothing to compare them to when you watch it on a screen. So in track and field, if you want to see just how advanced, how fast, the men and women are on the 100-meter dash. You need to take an average Joe like you or I and put them on the track and, and run in lane nine when they go, right? <laughs> and then we would see just how slow we are <laughs> compared to these folks who are just lightning fast because everybody in that final is lightning fast. And it's like hundreds of a second that divides the fastest people in the world. Same thing with, I always love watching shot put. These guys are throwing a 16-pound ball, but if you want to catch... Uh, how impressive it is. Take your average high school shot putter who throws a 12-pound shot put, give him the regulation size 16-pound shot put, put him in the ring and watch what he does or watch what she does. Now, it could be impressive, but then you watch the people who've qualified for the Olympics throw and they're not even in the same world. So, beloved, the old covenant and new covenant are sort of related like that. Was the old covenant of the law, the ministry of the law, revealed to Moses and to God's people, was it glorious? So glorious that Moses put a veil over his face. That glorious. Well, how do you top it? The ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, the covenant which doesn't just demand perfection, but supplies the perfection. That's how you top it. And so the old covenant has, or the new covenant has far more glory than the old covenant does and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the comparison between the two. So the comparison between the ministry of the law and the ministry of the gospel, I want to highlight three comparisons. First, the ministry of the law is passing away, but the ministry of the gospel is permanent. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10, we're told, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so the new covenant, the covenant, the, the, the ministry of the spirit or the ministry of righteousness is so glorious 
that Paul can say what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. In other words, if you want to compare the ministry of the law to the ministry of the gospel, there's really no comparison. But we know from Exodus 34, the ministry of the law was very glorious. It was impressive. But when compared with the ministry of the gospel, it's the ministry of the gospel is so much better. It actually causes the glory of the ministry of the law to fade away into almost nothing. The second thing I want to highlight regarding comparison that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 3 is this. The law, the ministry of the law was written on tablets of stone. The ministry of the gospel is written on tablets of human hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. You are a letter written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So there's a contrast between where the ministries are written. The ministry of the law was written on tablets of stone outside of the people, and it required perfect obedience, the Ten Commandments. But the ministry of the gospel is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we're changed from the inside out. The law is written inside not outside of us. And then thirdly, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time, the ministry of the law is called the ministry of death and condemnation. The ministry of the gospel is called the ministry of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 3, 9. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, what's Paul getting at? He's getting at this. The ministry of the law administered death and condemnation. This is really strong language. That was the ministry of the law revealed through Moses. It brought death. The Ten Commandments revealed the righteous character of God and the requirement of perfect and personal obedience. Even James talks about this, James 2.16. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's what the law reveals. The standard is perfect obedience it's personal obedience. We all have to obey perfectly for ourselves. And the standard is that someone must keep every single commandment of God for his whole life in thought, word, and deed from the heart, completely avoiding sin and fulfilling all obedience. And if they don't, then death and condemnation. This is why the ministry of law is called a ministry of death and condemnation, because the only thing it produces is death and condemnation. The law cannot save. The law cannot produce salvation in us. The law can whip us. It can beat us. It can hop on our back with a saddle and say, giddy up. But it cannot get us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. No matter how loud it wants to yell, no matter how much guilt it wants to pile on us, it can't accomplish redemption in any human being. That's the ministry of the law. It does accomplish condemnation. No human being has ever kept the law good enough to be saved and no one ever will. But the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant ministry of the gospel is a ministry of righteousness. Now, if you ask the average person on the street what the ministry of righteousness means and what it means to be a Christian, you'll get an answer which goes something along the lines of this. To become a Christian means you become righteous. You do righteous things, you change your life and live righteously, and then you become a Christian. And I'm guessing that the average person on the street who doesn't know the Lord, and actually maybe a lot of people who are church members or people who are uh, attending churches, would have the same view of the ministry of righteousness that Martin Luther originally had when he wrote, I hated the word righteousness of God, because in accordance with the usage and custom of the doctors, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning 
the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless. I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And try as he might, he was living under the ministry of condemnation. My guess is that's where most people live. I become a righteous person and then God will love me. Christians are just good people who try harder than others and their good works outweigh their bad works. Christians are people who have obtained a righteousness of their own that God says, eh, not perfect, but close enough. You tried hard, you tried for enough years, you were really making a big effort, you're way better than those other people, stamp of approval, good to go. And that's not even close to the ministry of righteousness that the new covenant, the ministry of the gospel is talking about. One day Luther discovered this in Romans 1.17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And here's what he said. Finally, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And just as intensely as I hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. And he later mentioned something which I've read before to you. Justification is not a change in man. Being declared righteous is not a change in man, but the gracious declaration of God by which he pronounces righteous the sinner who in himself is not righteous. Now that is quite profound, beloved. That is the ministry of righteousness that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 3 that is so much better than the ministry of the law. Justification is not us having righteousness infused into us or earned by us. It's not a change in us. It's a transaction whereby God takes all of our debt and he erases everything out of that debit column and he takes the obedience of Jesus and he puts it in our credit column. It's a transaction in heaven. It's a mathematical change so that at that moment, we go from being regarded by God as condemned to being regarded by God as righteous with no change as of yet in ourselves. Now the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and we grow in sanctification to be sure that starts at that moment. But without any change in us while we were yet ungodly, we become righteous. That's the ministry of righteousness. S. Lewis Johnson quoting a Mr. Cunningham who I could not track down uh, said this, This is a mouthful. The righteousness of God is that righteousness of God, which God's righteousness requires him to require. And because we have a righteous God and because he has certain righteous requirements and because he gives that righteousness, which satisfies himself, we can stand before him with the sense of the right to enter heaven on the merits of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to highlight because he gives that righteousness which satisfies his own righteous requirements. We now have a right to enter heaven. That's the ministry of righteousness. And I want to just spend a little bit of time considering this for a moment. The holiness of God revealed in the law is glorious and bright. Moses' face proved it. All the people understood it. 
God's teaching his people the ABCs. Let's say we're on letter Y right now. Maybe we're on W or X. We're getting close to the end of the alphabet. But we're on letter C in Exodus 34. And the people are learning that the revelation of the law is an incredible privilege. It's wonderful to hear this. We're learning what God's righteous requirements are. But it produces fear and condemnation. The revelation of the law exposes us in our sin, but if all we have is the law without the gospel, then we're left in fear and condemnation. And Christians who are big on God's law, which Reformed Christians are, can sometimes lose track of this. God's holy character and the holiness required in the law serve to reveal the glory of God, but the revelation is only good for scaring us to death and condemning us. And the old covenant ministry of condemnation, which came through the law, proclaims Hear ye, hear ye, there's not a single one of you who have kept the law. You're all condemned. Have a good day. Case is closed. But the new covenant ministry of righteousness proclaims, Hear ye, hear ye, the law has demanded your heads because none of you is righteous, but there is one who's obtained righteousness for all who believe in him. And his name is Jesus. He kept the whole law. Heart, soul, mind, and strength thought, word, and deed, wasn't born into original sin and himself never actually sinned, never committed a sin of omission or a sin of commission. He perfectly pulled it off. And everyone who believes in him is treated, regarded by God as if that person had individually kept all the commandments because we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. The ministry of the law requires us to fulfill righteousness. The ministry of the gospel gives us the required righteousness through faith in Jesus. Or to use the language of Ralph Erskine, an 18th century Scottish pastor, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, but denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and it gives me wings. It's very easy to become so focused on the law of God and our obedience to the law that we lose sight of the gospel. And if we do lose sight of the gospel, we're right back to the ministry of condemnation. Giddy up. Go do it. You got to try harder. Yesterday was a wreck. Tomorrow doesn't look very good either. Have fun. And you wake up next week. Giddy up. You got to do harder. You got to do more. You got to try harder. And maybe one day you'll get there. And don't talk about atonement for past sins. We haven't figured that one out. That's the ministry of condemnation, beloved. It's a horrible ministry to live under. It's death. Why do we need this ministry of righteousness and to be reminded of it and to have it in front of us? We'll need this for our own hearts and lives. I would hate to guess how many of us believers all across the world, myself included, live daily under the ministry of the law's condemnation. Not theologically so, And not actually so, but mentally and in our hearts so. Trying harder to be good, desperately slogging our way through life, trying to earn God's favor and secure our entrance into heaven at least a little bit. With almost no joy or thanksgiving or gladness of heart. Let this minister to your own heart, beloved. That the ministry of the gospel is a ministry of righteousness, which is supplied to you. There is not a single thing you or I have to do to earn our way into heaven. You're already in. (laughs) 
We already have eternal life. And now life is thanking God. We'll need this in our parenting. Lest we teach our children that Christianity is a law without a law keeper. It's easy to become wrapped up in requirements for our children, right? Hey, do this, don't do this. <laughs> Maybe one of the most common phrases from any parent, especially when kids are young, is just a two-letter word. Kids know what it is, right? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Until kids learn boundaries and they learn what to do and what not to do. And all that's part of training, right? But if all we do is throw our kids a bunch of rules and never extend them grace, never tell them, hey, look, I forgive you. The Lord forgives you. I love you. God loves you even more than I do. And there's forgiveness. Then they may grow up thinking Christianity is just a bunch of rules. Growing up under the ministry of condemnation rather than learning about the ministry of righteousness. And then we will also need this in our evangelism, lest we give people the impression that Christianity is a bunch of rule-keeping people trying to convince people of their sin and leaving them without any hope of forgiveness in Christ. People have, they often do, an innate sense that something's wrong with them and it's up to them to fix it. Human beings often by nature have that. There's something wrong. I may not want to admit it to anybody who's a believer, but I'm pretty sure something's wrong and that I've got to do something to fix it. The ministry of law tells them exactly that. There is something wrong with you, and it's up to you to fix it. Good luck. But the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the gospel tells them, you're right, there is something wrong with you. In fact, let's go, there's something very wrong with you. Incredibly wrong with you and all of us. And God has fixed the problem with his son. If you believe in him, then he declares you righteous and the problem's fixed and you can spend the rest of your life praising God. Let's pray.